is to the ninth chapter of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9. We're returning to our study in the epistle to the Romans that we left uh, shortly before Christmas. And I need uh, to uh, warn you that our return is fraught with, uh, with some peril because we are tackling this morning what I think is the most difficult text in the entire book of Romans, if not the uh, the hardest text to interpret in the New Testament. Almost any group of commentators that you read will have differing points of view on this passage, and we need to understand that as we uh, as we approach it. There are things here that we cannot fully understand, and there will be issues about uh, which we have disagreements, but uh, that's all right. Our task is to try to understand it. And having interpreted it, assuming that our interpretation is, uh, is correct, is proper, is aligned with the rest of Scripture, the, the question then becomes what to do with it. It's not only difficult to interpret, but uh, difficult to apply. This text belongs in that category of uh, things the apostles would probably call a hard saying, hard to wrestle with. Uh, the only way to, to, to take this text on is uh, the way you get into a mountain lake. You just have to leap in, and you may suffer a heart attack before you get out, but uh, we will do the best we can. Let me remind, let me remind you what uh, Paul has been saying in the opening chapters of the book of Romans. As you know, Paul's concern is with the, uh, the terrible plight of mankind. We are sinful. The first two and a half chapters establish that all of us, bar none, are uh, sinful and separated from God. If sin were blue, we would be some shade of blue all over. We're tinted and tainted by sin. The next two and a half chapters announce the good news, the fact that God himself became man and bore our sins in his body on the cross. That's uh, perhaps the, the highest expression of the love of God, that he was incarnated, that he became flesh, lived among us, and then bore our sins in his own body on the cross so that we are set free from our past. We don't have to worry about guilt, past guilt over sin. Sin's power over us in the present has been broken, and we don't have to fear the future. Death no longer holds, uh, holds us in its grip. Christ, by death, put death to death. So the death for us is simply gaining more of God. That's the good news. And then uh, in the final three chapters of this first section of, of Romans 1 through 8, Paul talks about our sanctification. That is the process by which God brings us into a mature relationship with him and begins to use us. And then we come to chapter 9, and everybody fogs out at about this point and wants to skip right on to chapter 12, which you can do. That's the remarkable thing about this section. It is something of a parenthesis, and... Uh, you could go from the end of chapter 8 where Paul expresses his praise to God for what he has done and God's great mercy in, in pouring his love out uh, for us and then go right on to chapter 12. I appeal to you on the basis of the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice. We could do that, but uh, if we do that, we're not playing fair with the text. Uh, I have actually been in Bible studies where teachers came to this point in the book of Romans and said, I don't understand chapter 9. I, have, I don't have a clue. I don't have the foggiest idea what he's talking about. Let's go on to chapter 12. And we did so. But uh, we shouldn't do that. We need to uh, tackle these tough uh, texts and, and try to understand them. Now let me uh, begin reading with verse 1. 
uh, where Paul uh, asserts three times that he's he's telling the truth. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Now, we, we have to understand what, what lies behind this, this, this difficult section of Acts, chapters 9, 10, and 11, and why Paul seems to uh, take a little detour here for a moment. The reason was this. The questions were being raised about the place of Israel in God's program. Where do they fit? If, if, if God's love has been poured out upon the nations in general... If God's concern is to work through the church, the new Israel of God, what about the old Israel of God? What about the Jewish people? Does God still have a plan for them? For 2,000 years, Israel was constituted the missionary force to proclaim the, the good news to the world that God loves you. This was something that was unknown in the ancient world. God was to be feared. God was to be propitiated. You sacrificed your children. In order to appease God, things were, were difficult. God was frowning at the human race. People were frightened out of their wits. And God wanted them to know that he loved them. And so he called into being one nation. These were his missionaries to make proclamation to the world that God loves you and cares about you very much. And for 2,000 years they had that, uh, that mission. And then finally God himself came in the form of a Jew. He was Emmanuel, God with us. And it's clear from the context in Isaiah that the us refers to the nation of Israel. God became an Israelite. God's love was fleshed out in a Jew. And he lived among us and died, died for us. What a wonderful announcement now to make, you know, to make proclamation of, of the fact that, uh, that God had become one of us and died for us. And when Paul heard that good news, he wanted to announce that to his countrymen. So he would go from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue preaching, preaching the good news. And uh, because he was a rabbi, he put on his rabbinic robes and he'd step behind the lectern and he'd take out the scroll, Torah scroll or the Isaiah scroll, and he would begin to preach and people would doze off. They'd go to sleep. Or, or they'd start getting angry, see it in their eyes. And uh, uh, Paul would be ushered out the front door. In some cases, he, he was... He was he was stoned. They hated him. And Paul, what's going on here? These are the people that God has called to announce the good news, and they're, now they're rejecting the gospel. And he'd go out on the streets, and, and he'd find some Roman soldier, a Roman businessman, and he'd begin to chat with him about the good news. And this man would say, I, I never heard that before. I didn't know that. Tell me more. And he'd invite him over to his house, and the man would invite all of his rasty neighbors in and the Friday night poker group. And and they'd sit around the living room and Paul would begin to tell them that God loves them and that he manifested himself in Christ and he died for their sins. And they'd get excited about that and they'd respond to it. And Paul would scratch his head and he would say, my own people won't listen to the gospel, but the Gentiles are listening to the gospel. And he had to go back and rethink all of his theology on the basis of the Old Testament. And and he he began to put together a way of explaining to his Jewish countrymen who were troubled by this change in format, this change in emphasis, he began to, to put together a way to explain to them 
that God was moving the Jews off of the center of, of the stage of world history, and he was moving another group on, a new Israel. He was forming a new set of, of missionaries to announce the gospel. And that's what's behind chapters 9, 10, and 11. Now, three times Paul asserts that he's going to tell, tell the truth. And we say, why bother? You're, you're an inspired apostle. You don't have to say this three times. But Paul, I think Paul was being charged with having turned his back on his Jewish countrymen. He was rejecting his Jewishness. And so he wants to assert once and for all that he loves these people with all of his heart. I speak the truth in Christ, he says. All right, Paul, we believe you. We trust you. I am not lying. Oh, okay, Paul, we, we, got, we got the message. My conscience confirms me in the Holy Spirit. Okay, Paul, we, we believe you. What do you want to say? I love the Jewish people, he says. I haven't, I haven't rejected them. I'm willing to die for them. As a matter of fact, like Moses, who was willing to have his name expunged from the book of life, he's willing to have, have his name taken out of the book of life. I'm willing to lose my salvation for my own countrymen. What Paul expresses is the same kind of ambivalence that you, that you and I ought to express because of the gospel. We ought to be so excited about the fact that we've been included in, but it ought to break our heart that, that people are not yet on the inside. You know, I, I read that verse over and over and over this week, and I kept saying to myself, Roper, you have a heart of stone. Honest to goodness. You don't love people like that. You see, that's the heart of God. His heart is broken because people are on the outside. And Paul's heart was broken because people were on the outside. And our hearts ought to be broken. And all I can do is ask God to give me that kind of, of heart. It's a gift. If it comes at all, it, it's a gift. It's something that we ought to pray for, that God would move us to the same kind of love for people that, that have not yet responded to the gospel. Now, uh, Paul goes on, just so we understand the privilege of, of, the, of the old Israel, something of, uh, of what God has made available to them, beginning with verse 4. Theirs is the adoption as sons. They were adopted out of Egypt. As Hosea puts it, uh, God said, out of Egypt, I have called my son. He became their father. Israel became his son. There's the divine glory. He's thinking of the, uh, the cloud of fire that uh, was suspended over the tabernacle by day and the pillar of fire at, at night, which represented the presence of God. The, the, the Jews referred to that cloud as the Shekinah. It comes from a Hebrew word. It means to dwell because God dwelt within his people. He was there present. That was one of the unique characteristics of Israel, something that was not true of any other nation. It was a visible symbol of the presence of God in, in the nation of Israel. There's the divine glory, God himself dwelling among them. They had the covenants, that is, these uh, great agreements that God made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that he would give them a land and that he would guarantee their integrity in the land and that that uh, he would enrich them and bless them, and through them the seed would, would come. There's the receiving of the law. They were given the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai that codified 
form of God's will so that there would be no question about what God wished and wanted. And then the further explanation of, of, of those laws in the rest of the, of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. The temple worship centered around the sacrifice of the Lamb, which symbolized the coming of the Lamb of God who would one day take away the sin of the world. And the promises, these promises that God asserted over and over and over again that he was going to bring the seed through the nation. Promised Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and, and then uh, Judah and then David and then Solomon and, and Rehoboam and Abijah and Asa and so forth on through the kings of Judah that one day one of their descendants would, uh, would be born who would be God himself who would rule over Israel and rule over, over the world. These theirs are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, and the twelve sons of Jacob. And from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all forever praised. Last but not least, God himself came through the nation of, of Israel in the form of a, of, of, of a man, the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. Uh, these are Israel's benefits. But despite all that God gave them, they turned their back on, on these good things. And as Isaiah puts it, their scandal is that the very message which they were called upon to announce, they rejected. That's what Isaiah means in Isaiah 53 when he says, Who has believed our report? In other words, who of you Jews have believed what we ourselves were called upon to report? They turned their back on their missionary privilege. And that's what broke That's what broke Paul's heart. Now, uh, Paul wants us to know that despite the fact that Israel rejected their missionary call, God's program has not gone awry. The the wheels have not fallen off of his program. Uh, Everything is intact. God is not pacing uh, the floor, wringing his hands, biting his fingernails, wondering now how he's going to get the job done. It is not, Paul says in Romans 6, uh, Romans uh, 9, 6, it is not, though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, through Isaac shall your offspring come. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how uh, this was how the promise was stated at the appointed time I will return and Sarah shall have a son Not only that but Rebekah's children had one and the same father our ancestor Isaac yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose and election might stand not by works but by him who calls she was told the o- the, the older will serve the younger Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, there's a text to wrestle with. What is Paul saying? Well, he's giving giving them a history lesson. So I want to remind you what happened when God called Abraham. Because this gives us an idea of how God has worked historically. This This is the way he goes about getting the job done. What did he do? Now he called Abraham out of the Chaldees. There's this old moon-worshipping Chaldean who, who, who apparently had a heart for God but didn't know God. And 
God introduced himself to Abraham, and he called him out of Ur of the Chaldees and brought him over to the, the land, of what we call today the land of Israel. And he camped on one of the main north-south uh, trade routes in that part of the country. He pitched his little tent, built an altar, and, and he, he announced the name of the Lord. He proclaimed the good news to the people that, that traveled up and down that trade route. That was the only way to get any place in those days. Wherever you were going in the ancient Near East, you had to, you had to go up and down the, that, that spine of mountains right along the Jordan Valley. And that's where the trade routes were. And that's where Abraham lived. And that's where he announced the gospel. And God said, all right, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And I, I've been working through you, but, but now I'm going to work through your son. So Abraham said, what? That's a good plan. He said to Sarah, let's have a son. And uh, they, they went about trying to have a son, and they were childless. Uh, and after a while, Abraham became impotent. He was too old to have children. And Sarah went through the menopause. So it was all over for them. They couldn't have any children. So they did what couples used to do in the ancient Near East. When they couldn't have children, it was perfectly acceptable then. It was all right in terms of of their culture. Sarah gave Abraham her handmaiden, whose name was Hagar, slave girl. And Abraham had a child through Hagar, named him Ishmael. Thought that was the one. God says, no, 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 that's not the one. You are always trying to help me out. Will you please stop doing that? I have my own way of getting the job done. Sarah will have a child. He took Abraham out under the stars, and he said, Abraham, can you count the stars? That's how many children you're going to have. text says, Abraham believed God. Remember Romans 4, we talked about that, that event in Abraham's life, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. So they they started trying to have a son. And sure enough, they did. God regenerated Abraham's body. He opened Sarah's womb. They had a little boy. His name was Isaac. And God says, all right, now I'm going to work through Isaac. Not Ishmael. Not Ishmael. I'm going to work through Isaac to get the message out to to the nations. Well, you say, sure, sure, it has to be Isaac because Ishmael wasn't a legitimate son, wasn't Sarah's son. has to be Isaac. Paul says, all right, let's just uh, move on down through history. Another notch I'd like to call to your attention that um, this boy Isaac married a young lady by the name of Rebecca. And uh, Rebecca had two children, twin boys, same father, same mother. When they were born... Uh, Esau was born first, a few moments before Jacob. Jacob was the second born. Normally the first born would be given all the, the privileges. He would inherit everything that the father had. God said before the children were even born, before they had a chance to establish any merit, to do anything good or bad, as Paul puts it, God said, the older will serve the younger. He, God just stood history on its head. He turned their culture upside down. Why? Because he's God. He has the right to do that. He he could have chosen Esau. That would be the natural choice. He did not. He chose to work through Jacob. You see? So what Paul is saying is down through history, God has sovereignly chosen those through whom he will work. He worked through Abraham to get the gospel out. He worked through Isaac to get the gospel out. He worked through Jacob to get the gospel out. 
Now, we must understand, in this text, Paul is not talking about election to salvation. I believe in election. Now, we could, we could teach any number of passages. Ephesians 1 would be the best and come to that conclusion. But here, Paul is not talking about election to salvation. He's talking about national entities or individuals or whomever he chooses to work through to get the gospel out through the world. And the reason I believe that is because the quote which Paul draws from, from Malachi makes that very clear. Uh, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Ooh, sounds terrible. That can't be our Lord. He loves people. How could he hate Esau? Well, if you read the book of Malachi, which is the last of the minor prophets, chapter 1, you'll see he's not talking about peep, about a person, an individual person. He's not talking about Jacob and Esau. He's talking about the nations that sprang from their loins. The Israelites, whom he calls Jacob, and the Edomites, whom he calls Esau. And what he is saying in Malachi is that God has chosen to work through Israel and not Edom. I've loved Israel. They're my missionaries. Not Esau and his descendants. Now, you, you, you know, reasonably, you, you could ask, why does God hate them? Well, not really. This is what grammarians would call today hyperbole, the use of exaggeration for emphasis. Jesus did the same thing when he said, you should love the Lord your God so much that it appears that you hate your mother and father. Now, he doesn't really mean that. He's simply saying that our love for God should be so intense that it is, it is as though we hate mother and father. And that's what, that's what uh, Malachi means, that God chose Jacob, he chose Israel, this particular national entity, these are his missionaries, and he, and, and, and he set Esau aside. Now, you see what he's saying in, in these verses? God has the right to move one individual or one set of individuals center stage and move somebody else off. He has that right. And if he chooses to work through Isaac instead of Ishmael, that's okay. That's all right. If he chooses to work through Jacob and Esau, that's all right. If he chooses to work through Israel and not Edom, that's okay. God has the right to do that. And, and that's what Paul wants us to understand. Now, uh, uh, Paul's a good thinker and... He anticipates uh, any objections that we might raise, and I'm sure at this point you have a couple of them, and you'll be glad to know Paul has anticipated them. He says in verse 14, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Oh my, you say, that, that does seem terribly unjust of God to do that, to make these seemingly arbitrary choices. <laughs> now, you'll notice what Paul does. He, he really doesn't argue the case. He just says, No. No, God's not unjust. We just have to let God be God. That's his point. And he adduces two more illustrations of the way God works in history to, to get the job done. And, and the illustration he uses is the redemption of his people out of Egypt. Now, throughout the Old Testament, this uh, idea of Israel being brought miraculously out of Egypt uh, is an illustration of salvation, of, of the redemption of the individual. It's used that way in the Old Testament. And uh, in the New Testament, it was an idea that's deeply embedded in, in Scripture, so it wouldn't be anything new to the Romans that Paul, Paul is addressing this, uh, this book to. Now listen, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I, may dis- that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And you're thinking, now there he goes again, shaking out more snakes than he can kill in the next, uh, next half hour. No, 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 really. The, Paul's, Paul's argument makes a lot of sense. He's saying, now how did God deliver Israel from Egypt? He did it through two men. And, and you can't think of two more disparate examples. Moses and Pharaoh. You read the account, that's exactly what happened. He delivered Israel through Moses and Pharaoh. How did he do it? Well, he had mercy on Moses and he hardened the heart of Pharaoh. You say, well, how did that happen? Well, uh, the, the, the passage from which he quotes here is in Exodus 33. Moses, uh, Moses, as you know, was a very timid fellow, very insecure, was dragged kicking and screaming into this job did not want to be the deliverer of Israel. God coerced him into it. He went reluctantly. He was a known murderer. He thought he would probably be clapped in irons if he went back to Egypt. He was scared out of his wits. He went back anyway, counting on God and on the name of God, and he he was the instrument that God used to deliver Israel. And he got out into the wilderness, and he got frightened again because he had to take care of all of these people. How do you feed them? How How do you provide for them? The logistics of that operation were enormous. How do you do it? So uh, uh, Moses uh, was talking to God one day on the mountain about this whole thing, and God said, all right, what do you want me to do? Moses said, show me your glory. Show me who you are. I want the, I want the full manifestation of your character. God says, well, I, I can't do that. I can't, I can't show you all of my character. But what I'll do is put you in a little crack in the rock and and you'll see a portion of of my character. And that's exactly what he did. He had mercy on Moses. He he revealed his character to Moses. And Moses then was able to to become the man that God could use to deliver his people. And what about Pharaoh? Well, you know what happened to Pharaoh. Moses went to this man. Uh, Incidentally, if you ever want to see him, he's lying in state in the Egyptian museum. He's this little wizened, dried-up fellow, about five feet long. And uh, uh, I've seen him, and uh, the thought that went through my head is, this this is the fellow that shook his fist in God's face? Uh, but, you know, he, he thought he was a god. He, he thought he was, well, he was the, basically the king of the ancient world at that time. And uh, Moses went to him and, and said, uh, let my people go. God said, let my people go. Pharaoh said, no, no, you can't go. He hardened his heart. And uh, one plague struck, and he said, all right, you can go. And then he changed his mind, and he hardened his heart again. Another plague struck, he hardened his heart. Finally, we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart irrevocably so that he could no longer soften his heart. He said, well, why would God do that? Well, he, Pharaoh had hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart, so God hardened his heart. And that became the means 
of delivering Israel out of, out of Egypt. Now, Paul says these are two historic examples. Again, God has the right to do as he pleases. He has the right to show mercy to one individual and use him to bring salvation to his people and to harden the heart of, of another. Now, uh, Paul goes on in verse 19 to anticipate another uh, objection we might raise. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? That's an excellent question. If God moves one individual center stage and blesses him to bring salvation to his people, if he moves another man center stage and, uses, and hardens his heart to, to bring salvation to his people, then if either of these men stand before God at some point in the future, they're going to say, well, wait a minute, I, I didn't have any choice in this matter. Now, you'll notice what Paul does. He doesn't answer this objection because he realizes this is not really the question. There is an underlying question that he speaks to. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? But who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? What he sees is an unsubmissive spirit, a spirit of rebellion in the people that ask that question. They're basically saying God doesn't have the right to be God. So he speaks to that issue. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Now he's not saying that we're pieces of clay. We're not. Clay is inanimate. We're inanimate. He's simply, he's just taking an illustration out of, out of ordinary life. And he was saying, wouldn't it be ludicrous if, if the potter, instead of making a piece of fine china out of a, a lump of clay, decided to make a, just a cheap pottery uh, vase. And the vase said to the potter, you can't do that. You, you don't have any right to do that. I'm the one that determines what I shall be. Now, Paul is not saying that God treats us like that. He's just drawing an analogy from life. The, the potter has the right to determine what form the clay will take. And what he's saying is that God is sovereign. These choices that, God's make, that God makes come out of his freedom to choose as he will. No one coerces him. No one tells him what to do. No one counsels him. He's God. He has the right to do it. Now, he raises a hypothetical question. Verse 22, what if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of all his mercy, uh, to, to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory even us whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. What if God tolerates evil so Jews and Gentiles can come into a relationship with God? What, what if he permits evil men to rise to positions of power? If that, is, if that, if that draws men into the love of God, what, what if he did that? What if he did that? What if God permitted, uh, say 20 years from now, he permitted a, a, an evil, atheistic, uh, totalitarian government to assume control in the, in the United States? 
And they padlocked all the churches. And they uh, locked up all the preachers, which might be a good thing to do anyway. And burned all the Bibles and, and said you can never again talk about, about God. And they expunged every reference to God from the literature. And they prohibited teachers from talking about, about spiritual things in, in, in the schools. And, and you had a, to, a, to, a completely materialistic, atheistic, totalitarian regime. Suppose that happens 20 years from now. What do you think would be the result? I know what would be the result. There would be hundreds of thousands of people that would come to Christ as a result. Because historically, that's what's happened. Look at Red China. It's a good example. Maoists took over, unleashed their Red Guards. They slaughtered Christians by the thousands, burned church buildings, destroyed Bibles. You know, today, there are more Christians in China than any other place in the world. That's what happened in Uganda. Some of you know David Burney, the Episcopalian bishop here in in Idaho, he was a missionary in Uganda for years during Idi Amin's regime. And uh, he tells about the hundreds of thousands of Christians that were just indiscriminately killed during Amin's uh, terrible uh, reign of terror. What happened? Church flourished and grew. And, 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 and right now the church is stronger than ever in that, in that country. Same is true of, of the Indians in the mountains of Chile, as you know, that have been ruthlessly persecuted. Does God have the right to do that? Does he have the right to raise up that kind of, of government in order to produce good? Yes, he does. He does. That's his point. Does God have the right to harden the nation of Israel after they have repeatedly hardened their hearts to the gospel, shift them off center stage so that the Gentiles can come in? You bet your life he does. And that's exactly what God has done. That's the point that Paul is making. It's not that God dislikes the Jews. It's that he has the right to move this national entity off center stage and put another group of missionaries into a position of prominence and turn them loose to proclaim the gospel so that both Jews and Gentiles can be brought in. Paul makes that point, uh, verse 24. Even us, whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. And in case there's any question about God's right to do this, he quotes two Old Testament prophets who, who predicted before the time that this, this is exactly what would happen. One is Isaiah and the other is Hosea. He says in Hosea, verse 25, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And it will happen that in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Remember Hosea? Talked about Hosea a couple of weeks ago when we were in our marriage uh, series. No, actually, I guess it was a Christmas message, wasn't it? And I pointed out that uh, Hosea's uh, wife became a prostitute. She had two illegitimate... At least two illegitimate children. They had three children, all told. And the two illegitimate children were called uh, Not My People. The little boy was given that name. And the little girl was called Not Loved. And these, uh, these children were, were a symbol, a message to the nation that, that Israel was sliding into decline. 
And they were within 20 years of Hosea's uh, ministry. The old nation was taken into captivity by the Assyrians. The city of Samaria was, was sacked and burned and and Israel ceased as a nation. No one knows where the ten tribes are today. Hosea saying, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. You're not going to be my people. And what happened is that Israel was rejected. And God moved the Gentiles into place. And Paul's point is that now we, who were not the people of God, we were on the outside, have become the people of God. And we, who were unloved, have now become loved of God. Who's the we? All Jews and Gentiles who make up what we call the church of Jesus Christ. We now are on the inside. Hosea said it would be so. He said it 700 years ago. Now verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the Israelites should be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. You see, Isaiah predicted Again, in the 8th century, that only a hardcore faith would be left in Israel, that the nation itself would be set aside, but there, there would be believers. There would be people that accepted the Messiah. They're, they're the remnant. This is an emphasis in Isaiah's writings over and over again. He even had a child that he called Shir Yeshub, a remnant shall return. Again, as a sign to the people that, that Israel would be rejected, but there would be believers within within Israel who would come to Messiah. For the Lord, he says, will carry out a sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord all-powerful had left us descendants, that's a spiritual descendant he's referring to, a spiritual seed, those that acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah, we would have become like Sodom and we would have become like Amaro. He's talking, actually in context, he's talking about the exiles who return. But it's applied by Paul to refer to the spiritual return of Israel. There'll be a few. There'll be a few. And then there's some of you sitting out there who are Jews, who have come to the Messiah, and you're part of that remnant. Now, do you understand what Paul is saying so far? far? Really, the argument's very simple. It's just this, and I'll restate it. God has the right to do as he pleases. And he has the right to move one nation out of the center, out of the center of gravity, historically, and move another nation in in order to proclaim the gospel. He's not talking about an election to salvation. Because as a matter of fact, you know, there's, there's some evidence that Ishmael himself was a believer. Genesis uh, 31 says that uh, God says uh, he was with the lad. God was with the lad. And uh, we don't know about Esau. There's a, there's a possibility that Esau may have even come to God late in his life. We, we just don't know about their salvation. This passage is not talking about their salvation. It's talking about God's right to speak through whomever he will, whenever he will, however he will. And he has the right to move Israel off stage. If you want an illustration of it in the United States, you, you have a good one. Back in the 1700s, 1800s, the center of gravity in terms of missions was Great Britain. Britain drifted into apostasy, and the United States became the center of gravity. That's changing. That's no longer true. Today, the great missionary nations, the sending nations, are the third world nations. Nigeria and, and Korea, uh, th those sorts of places. You see what's happened? God has moved the United States off center stage, and he's moved in a new set of missionaries. 
And this is what Paul is concerned about. This is his explanation for what's happened to Israel. They've been moved off stage, but God is working through a new Israel, the church made up of Jew and Gentile, reaching out to the whole world, not just Jews, but Gentiles. In case there's any doubt, read on. Verse 30, what then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it a righteousness that is what? By election? No, by faith. Any Gentile who wants to come to Christ can do so by faith. No one is excluded. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel who pursued a law of righteousness has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. Does this exclude Jews? No. Any Jew who believes that Jesus is the Messiah is included in. Uh, he, he says of Israel that they had, did not attain it uh, because they attained it. They, they pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Two points Paul wants us to, he, he makes and he wants us to understand. The first is that anyone is included, Jew, Gentile. And the way is by faith, and it's faith in Jesus. That's the issue. That's the way we come to Christ, and that's the message that we announce. We don't complicate it. We don't put writers on it. We just proclaim that Jesus is the way. And you believe in him and what he has done for you, then you are included in. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And the analogy that Paul uses is the one that Isaiah uses, and it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament of a, of a rock, a huge mass of rock that's embedded in the ground. He said, that's the way Jesus is. And you, you, you try to lift him and get him out of the way, and you hurt yourself. And you try to get away from him, and you keep falling over him. He's a stumbling stone. Paul says you've got two options. You, you, you either fall over Jesus or you take your stand upon him. There aren't any other options. He's just there. He's that Im, immovable object like, like the elephant in your room. That you, can't, you, know, you, you don't like the fact that he's there, but he's there. And you try to pretend he's not, but he's there. He just keeps showing up. And that's the way Jesus is, is in your life and mine. He is that, that immovable stone of stumbling. I told you a few years ago of a student that I uh, talked to once. He was sitting on a park bench, and he was reading a magazine or a newspaper, and he didn't seem interested in his news, newspaper, so I struck up a conversation with him. And, and after a, a while, uh, I asked him if he had any interest in spiritual things, and he said no. And uh, I said, uh, well, that's interesting. Most people do. Can you tell me why not? And he leaped to his feet, and he, 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 he just absolutely blew his cork. He has completely lost his temper. And I, I said, well, uh, excuse me. I said, I didn't mean to upset you. I, you know, I just I wanted to talk about the Lord and his love for you. And he said, that's the way it is. And he, and he told me his story. He was raised in China. His, his parents were Presbyterian missionaries in mainland China. When the Maoists took over, he, they moved to Taiwan, and they were both teaching in a seminary, Presbyterian seminary in Taiwan. He would heard the gospel over and over and over again in his house. He said to me, all my life, 
I've been running away from Jesus Christ, and everywhere I go, some idiot sits down and talks to me about Christ. I say, yeah, that, that's the way it is. That's the way it is. He's that stone. And you either fall over it, or you take your stand on it. There aren't any other options. Now I want to leave you with three, uh, with three comments. Actually, two comments and a, and a question. First thing I would say is that we, we simply have to let God be God. He has that right. We can't second-guess him. We, we, he, he just has to be God. That's all. You know, that, that's the message that, that came through to Job after all of his terrible suffering. He says at the end, I, I thought I knew God. I, 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 I thought I knew you, but now I see you with my eyes. He gained another perspective on God, and he realized that God was sovereign, and he had the right to do as he pleased. That's the first lesson we have to learn. We have to let God be God. Second comment I'd like to make is that Paul is teaching us that God is working inexorably and relentlessly in history. The wheels have not fallen off of his program. He is still at work to bring salvation to us and, and to the rest of the world. That's true globally. It's true nationally. It's true personally. God has the right to tolerate some evil that comes into your life that, that will be used to draw you closer to him. He has the right to do that. We'd like, you know, we pray, God, take this person out of my life, this employer, this employee, my brother, sister, mate, child, this physical affliction, whatever it is. Take it away, take it away. And God says, no, I'm going to tolerate that evil because that's what God will use. That's what I'm going to use to draw you closer to me. And seen in terms of eternity, that, that minor light affliction is working an exceeding weight of glory. He has the right to do that. Years ago, I met a, a young man who'd been a logger, tough, immense brute of a man. Autonomous man, had no use for God. Crushed his spine in a his spine was crushed in a logging accident. He ended up paralyzed from the waist down in a wheelchair, and that's what brought him to Christ. As he tells his story. That's the first time in his life he ever realized he didn't have the resources to to handle life. And he said something very interesting to me. He said Jesus uh, said that it's better to go into heaven with one eye than to have two eyes and go to hell. And he said I'd have to say that I'd much rather wheel into heaven than walk into hell on two good legs. That's what it took. That's what it took to bring him around. And, and we say, God, you don't, you don't have the right to do that. To inflict that kind of suffering, this man lives with pain. And, and will to the end of his life. We say, God, you don't have the right to do that. But he does. He does. He has the right to work through any vehicle or any set of mechanisms or any set of people that he chooses in order to draw us closer to him. He has that right. The third thing I, I want to say I'd like to phrase as a, as a question. What is Jesus Christ to you? What is he to you? Is he some, someone over whom you stumble? Is he a rock of stumbling to you? Or is he someone on whom you've taken your stand? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you again for this great uh, messenger, the Apostle Paul, who just tells, tells it like it is who speaks truth, 
without any mixture of error, who's willing to speak to the, the great issues of life that plague us and, and give us some answers that work. Lord, this morning we own your right to do as you please with us. We thank you for for loving us so much that you're willing to bring anything into our life to draw us into a relationship with you. We know that you want us to love you and to worship you more than anything else. And there's no end to what you'll go. You'll not go to, to draw us into that relationship. Lord, we give you that right. We want to respond to your to the direction that you take in history and the direction you take in our personal lives with an obedient heart, with a heart of faith. Thank you for what we've learned this morning. We want to thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.